This is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from Wednesday, September 30th. End times or seize the time. Wildfires have scorched more than 5 million acres, an area the size of Connecticut, as they rage through California, Oregon, and Washington this month. At the same time, states in the southeastern U.S. have been battered by powerful hurricanes. The number of human casualties is tragic and still mounting. The decimation of both wilderness and populated areas has been immense. Although the two events, fires and hurricanes, are totally different phenomena, they are closely linked. They are, in large part, the consequence of human activity. But not just any humans. They are the consequence of those who control the wealth of society and direct the production of energy, putting profits before all else. They have ignored scientists' warnings about the impact of massive carbon emissions and their impact on the Earth. The emissions of carbon, through the burning of oil, coal, and gas have led to what is known as the greenhouse effect. The carbon acts like a blanket, trapping the heat from the sun once it passes through the Earth's atmosphere, leading to an overall warming of the planet. Carbon emissions have increased year after year, the U.S. as a major contributor. This has had an impact, warming both the land and the sea. On the land, this means drought or severe decreases in rain and snowfall. Plant life dries up and may die, and trees in a weakened state are more susceptible to insects which attack them. The warming of the oceans, especially the Gulf of Mexico, means the storms increase in intensity with higher winds and carry more water because of the warmer water and air. As a result, we are seeing a record number of storms of increasing ferocity bring about more destruction as they hit land. In the west, the majority of the forests burning are near or on government-owned land. For nearly a century, the practice of quote-unquote managing forests has been to put out fires before they spread. This replaced a system of controlled burns, where fires were allowed to burn or were deliberately set and contained within a specific area. This accomplished a number of things. First, it prevented large amounts of branches and leaves from building up, which could be easily ignited. Also, there are many ecosystems that thrive when there are periodic fires because it prevents other species from invading and crowding out the plants that live there. The problem has been magnified due to more people moving to rural wooded areas, some pushed out of the cities because of the high cost of housing or trying to escape the deteriorating city conditions. There aren't real guidelines for building fire-resistant structures and there's no analysis of where it is safe to build. So the response to fires is focused on trying to save and preserve property. The fires brought orange skies to California and the evacuation of more than 10% of the population of Oregon. The smoke is spreading across the U.S. and is even reaching Europe. Along with the massive destruction and evacuations along the Gulf Coast, this should be a wake-up call for all of us.
In the past six months, the COVID-19 pandemic has put this system on trial. The responses to the spread of the virus have been guided by concerns for the economy, not our lives or health. This is no different from the response of those in power to global warming and climate disruption. We can't sit back and wait while more and more species go extinct and human life is threatened with disaster in this new globally warming world. The crisis was brought about by humans and it can and must be stopped by humans. We are the 99%, the majority. That task is up to us. This is our time. We must organize and act now to seize it. Microplastics, a huge problem. Plastic waste is a huge problem on this planet. Plastics are everywhere. They make up disposable packaging, pipes used in plumbing, packing peanuts, and are in many of our favorite stretchy fabrics, like those used to make leggings and athletic wear. Plastics are made from petrochemicals, byproducts of the petroleum industry, so they're a cheap and plentiful material. In the past 13 years, quote, half of all plastics ever made by humankind have been produced, unquote. But another form of plastic waste that's often forgotten about are the small synthetic fibers of microplastic that come off of our clothes when we do laundry. These ultra-tiny fibers, less than 5 millimeters in length, break off of polyester fabrics with regular washing and go out into our waterways or the ground. The result is a plastic pollution situation that's much bigger than previously imagined. And that doesn't account for the negative health effects we experience when we inhale or consume these microplastic fibers. Though we know they can cause inflammation in our bodies, there's still a lot left unknown how they affect us long term. Synthetic fibers like these make up 14% of plastics produced globally, and as long as the fossil fuel industry is around, there's going to be no end to plastics here on Earth. This only highlights the need to immediately eliminate the fossil fuel industry. Human beings have made excellent clothing and other essentials for most of our history without plastics. We must put a stop to the toxic emissions they create that further climate change and to all the toxic byproducts that are created from fossil fuel waste, like polyester fabrics, plastic straws, petrochemicals used in fertilizers or the pharmaceutical industry, and many more. We can truly thrive in a world that uses a limited amount of plastics without polluting the environment, but we're not going to get a chance to figure out how to make that a reality as long as profit-hungry capitalists are in charge. We have to get rid of their power over society. Then, and only then, will we be able to stop the pollution that is accumulating in our air, water, and land, creating the toxic environment we live in today. COVID-19. What's the vaccine timeline? When will a vaccine for COVID-19 be ready? The short answer is not for a while. There's a lot left unknown about the virus, like the level of immunity people keep after they recover from the virus, how long that immunity lasts, and whether someone can get reinfected. Last week, Dr. Redfield, head of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Infection, CDC, said the U.S. population could probably expect a vaccine by late 2021. But he warned that a potential vaccine might only be 70% effective at generating an immune response for the population. So even after a vaccine is available, widespread mask use is still going to be necessary to protect people. 
But one aspect often overlooked is that many of the vaccines we get require multiple doses, like for HPV or MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. The biggest vaccine producer in the world, Serum Institute of India, recently said it could take up to five years to fully vaccinate the global population if an approved COVID-19 vaccine requires two doses. We don't know how long it will take to produce a vaccine for COVID-19 or whether it's going to require multiple doses or not. And with all of the biotech and pharmaceutical companies working independently of each other, each trying to squeeze the most profit out of the vaccine-producing process by rushing clinical trials, it's not guaranteed that the vaccine itself will be safe and perform as it should. Competing for profits is not a good reason for vaccine producers to gamble with something so important, especially when so many lives are at risk. Virtual learning is not the same as being in a classroom. Students, teachers, and parents this fall are facing the consequences of our nation's leaders' inability and unwillingness to control the coronavirus pandemic. For students, long hours are spent on Zoom, WebEx, or some other online conferencing app without the human contact of their classmates and teachers. If they're working class, they're often in cramped spaces, shared bedrooms, at kitchen tables, with less than reliable Wi-Fi and computer access. And what if their household has two, three, or more students, but only one computer or no computer? These students are denied an education. Students in elementary school who do have computer access face an unbearably long time staring at screens every day without the real human contact with teachers and other children they so desperately need. As one New Jersey parent recently put it, quote, they can't just keep sitting in front of a computer all day like they're at an eight hour job. They're getting antsy, they're kids, unquote. And even for older students and adults, more able to sit patiently through a class or lecture, the effects of too much screen time on the eyes, the body, the brain, and the emotions is very real. And despite all attempts at normalcy, quote unquote, synchronous learning and regularly scheduled live virtual classes doesn't effectively compare to live learning. Students aren't greeted at the door individually as they enter. They don't exchange papers or homework with their teacher and classmates. They don't interact with their peers, and they don't get the same engaging humor, laughter, and emotion from their friends and teachers. Virtual quote-unquote learning is happening, and young people will still learn and develop. But to act like the system is acceptable and desirable, as the tech companies would love, or to hold the same expectations for students' learning as the education quote-unquote reform privatizers would love, is to deny reality. At this point, students and teachers are just doing what we have to do. Why did it come to this? Nurses win union recognition for the first time at a major North Carolina hospital, but the struggle continues. North Carolina has the second lowest percentage of union members among its workers of all the states in the country. So the fact that 1,600 nurses working at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, voted on September 17th to join the National Nurses Union is good news for all North Carolina workers. The nurses won with a majority of 70%, but their fight is hardly over. Mission Hospital was bought early in 2019 by Hospital Corporation of America, HCA, 
a notoriously anti-union chain of 184 hospitals and other healthcare facilities, mostly in the Southeast United States. Last year, HCA paid stockholders $600 million in dividends, while its CEO raked in $27 million. When the purchase was completed, HCA immediately started cutting staffing to bolster its bottom line. Wait times in the emergency room increased substantially. Intensive care unit nurses reported that HCA made them each responsible for three patients when previously the normal ratio was one to one. Under the pressure of increased workloads, highly experienced older staff began to retire and weren't replaced. Families immediately noticed that patient outcomes were deteriorating at what is the only major hospital serving the far west region of the state. When it bought Mission, HCA had made commitments to maintain or improve the quality of service at the hospital. Hundreds of Asheville residents protested worsening care at public hearings investigating how well HCA was following through on those commitments. Nurses say that they won the election partly thanks to support from the community, which recognized that the union nurses were fighting for higher standards of patient care. After it took over, HCA contracted with lower-cost, lower-quality suppliers of day-to-day -day supplies while cutting back on stockpiles. When COVID hit, management refused to make personal protective equipment, PPE, including masks, available throughout the hospital. In response, pro-union nurses campaigned successfully to force management to supply masks and other PPE for all those involved in patient care. COVID heightened nurses' perceptions of how HCA's profit-maximizing, cost-cutting efforts hurt their ability to serve the sick. This experience helped build support for unionizing even as HCA used COVID as an excuse to delay the union election by months. HCA has announced it's aiming to appeal the result of the vote certifying the National Nurses Union, a move that would delay the beginning of contract negotiations for months. HCA hopes that delays will wear down workers' confidence that anything will ever change, and with it, wear down support for the union. Mission nurses only got this far because they organized themselves to pressure the management on immediate issues like PPE, even before there was a union vote. Keeping up pressure on management to respond to the workers' everyday issues is one good way to counter the delaying and other tactics HCA will try in an effort to frustrate mission nurses' organizing. Indictment in Breonna Taylor case is another racist attack. Cops broke into Breonna Taylor's apartment in Louisville last March on a no-knock warrant and shot her to death. It's taken until now for the system to bring an indictment in the case. And, as much as the shooting was a product of the racist policing system in this country, the indictment itself is just as racist. Two of the three cops involved were not charged at all, and one was charged with quote-unquote wanton endangerment for firing shots that might have hurt her neighbors, not murder or even manslaughter. In short, Although three cops fired shots and Taylor died from them, not one of the cops was charged with killing her. Protests erupted not only in Louisville, but in New York City, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Philadelphia, Seattle, Portland, Chicago, Las Vegas, Nashville, and elsewhere around the country. The protesters are absolutely right to take to the streets. Despite the massive nationwide and worldwide protests following George Floyd's murder by Minneapolis police in May, 
racist cop murders have continued, and the indictment process in the Breonna Taylor case shows the rest of the so-called justice system is guilty too. Cops in this society can get away with killing black people without punishment. The Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, in announcing the indictment said, quote, mob justice is not justice, unquote, complaining about the protests that had shaken Louisville and other cities. He should have been talking about the history of racist white lynch mobs in Kentucky that slaughtered close to 200 black people between 1877 and 1934, often in a picnic atmosphere. In this case, those in power were probably hoping that the fact that one cop was charged with wanton endangerment would avoid more protests. But they were wrong. And we have to keep fighting until all people are safe from racist violence by cops or anyone. Bacon's Rebellion and the Making of Race in the United States Since the explosion of outrage following the police murder of George Floyd, millions of Americans, Black, White, and others as well, have focused their attention on race and racial oppression in the United States. They have looked back to the murders of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery this year as well as back a few years to the killings of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, and many more. And, if they have kept going, they've found that U.S. history is a centuries-long timeline of Black people killed by white people. Many have taken sides, marching and crying out for justice with the cry, Black Lives Matter, while some others shout, Blue Lives Matter, and support the police in an attempt to sound like they care equally about all lives. Some think that racism is inherent, a natural thing, and that white people will never treat black people with respect and justice. As we think about these beliefs and the huge challenge racial division still plays in the U.S., it is worth remembering that quote-unquote race, as we know it in this country, was conjured up and used by the early ruling class here as a response to poor black and white workers uniting in rebellion in the late 17th century. Here's how it happened. In the spring of 1676, the Virginia colony and Chesapeake region of the British Empire was ruled by a small stratum of society, tobacco plantation owners and British colonial officials. The remainder of the colony included indentured, also known as bonded, servants, white men who had their passage to the colony paid in return for some years of service, yet were treated nearly as poorly as slaves, white freedmen, freed from indentured servitude and now small landowners, farmers and laborers in the towns, and African-descended black laborers, some of whom were enslaved, but many of whom were in varying states of indentured servitude as well, and some of whom were also small farmers and laborers. In other words, there were at least thousands of poor white and black farmers and workers in the colony, many indentured, some enslaved, but most free. And because of their shared economic situation, they often worked together, ate and drank together, and talked about their oppressed positions in the colony, and on some occasions even fled from servitude together. In addition, although not recognized by the colonial society, other than when they needed to be used, exploited, or pushed off their land, there were thousands of indigenous people, including the Doeg tribe and others who were slowly being pushed westward and coming into violent conflict with the white settlers encroaching on their lands. 
The class division between the wealthy ruling class and the masses of farmers and workers had already led to a handful of small revolts since 1663. But in the years leading up to 1676, tensions had sharpened not only because class inequalities, but also because of the perceived indifference of the ruling class to the situation of farmers on the frontier as they came into conflict with the indigenous communities to the West. After years of demands for more support in their conflicts with the indigenous population, Nathaniel Bacon led a revolt of farmers against the colonial government. This portion of the rebellion saw white farmers attack and put on the run government leaders and was guided by Bacon's goal of forcing the government to help settlers push the indigenous people out of Virginia. It is without a doubt repulsive to learn of the racist nature of the settlers' attacks on the indigenous people. At the same time, this rebellion is worth looking at for lessons it has to teach us about the construction of racism in the colonies. Bacon's quote-unquote army consisted of many poor whites, both freed and bonded, and poor blacks, freed, bonded, and enslaved. Poor white and black workers and farmers joined together in a revolt against the colonial regime and big landowners responsible for their exploitation and impoverishment. Even when Bacon died, they persisted in their rebellion, forcing English ships to threaten them with bombardment before their final surrender. The last group of 100 rebel holdouts consisted of 80 black people and 20 English. Their cause undoubtedly denied indigenous people's rights, but this unity between poor white and black workers and farmers terrified the planters and the colonial government. If white and black workers could unite again in the future, they could easily overthrow the government and planter aristocracy, which was of course only a small minority of the population. They had to find a way to make sure it never happened again. They quickly hit on a cunning, cruel, and divisive way to do so. Give white workers certain rights and advantages over black workers, while at the same time enshrining black slavery into law. In the next 25 years, the colonial legislature passed a series of laws designed specifically to privilege white workers over black and to divide the two groups. In the words of one historian, quote, by a series of acts, the assembly deliberately did what it could to foster the contempt of whites for blacks and Indians, unquote. Once the legislature was done, blacks were not allowed to own slaves. Blacks were not allowed to own weapons. Blacks were not allowed to, quote, lift their hand, unquote, against Christians. Blacks could be punished by dismemberment, but white indentured servants could no longer even be whipped. Slaves were deprived of property which was then turned directly over to whites. Harsh punishments were implemented for miscegenation. People with any African heritage were defined as black. Release from slavery was forbidden. By 1705, these laws, Virginia's system of slavery based on skin color was in place. White workers were given freedom from servitude, the ability to own property and other privileges that blacks were specifically denied and the mixing of the two groups was more restricted than ever before. These factors all made it less and less likely that poor white workers and farmers would risk their small privileges to help more oppressed black workers. And once white-only slave patrols were instituted in 1727, white workers and farmers actually were tasked with directly oppressing now-enslaved blacks, and were usually paid to do so. In other words, the rulers, the tobacco planters, the colonial government, 
had successfully divided white workers and farmers from black workers who were now legally enslaved. In the coming decades and despite variations from state to state, the Virginia system of black slavery spread throughout the South, creating a rigid division based on skin color. In this way, Bacon's rebellion was the catalyst for the creation of quote unquote race in the United States. The next 300 years witnessed the violent exploitation and oppression of black people in the United States, first as slaves, then as destitute sharecroppers and tenant farmers, then as a super-oppressed, super-exploited group of workers within the larger working class. Meanwhile, the genocidal assaults on indigenous tribes expanded all the way across the continent. The modern United States was built on the racist slavery of Africans and genocide of indigenous peoples. Bacon's Rebellion and what came after provide us with significant lessons that are valuable for us in 2020. In the first place, the idea of quote-unquote race in this case must be understood as the creation of the Virginia ruling class 350 years ago. As Theodore Allen, one of the most prominent historians of class and race in the United States, writes, quote, the white race must be understood not simply as a social construct, but as a ruling class social control formation, end quote. The idea of whiteness and in opposition to that blackness was created, nurtured and promoted by the dominant class of people to keep white and black working people or other people of color from ever uniting to challenge the system. In Bacon's rebellion, black and white workers and farmers united to fight for their common interests. Although their 1676 rebellion failed and was compromised by their own racist violence against indigenous people, their example hints at what is possible when different groups of workers unite. If all workers who are exploited and oppressed by the system were to unite in rebellion, we would be a powerful force that could overcome today's ruling class. By knowing this history, we can begin to chip away at the ideology of race and the divisions that it causes. And if we do that, we can begin to build a working class unity, a solidarity that could challenge the system that dominates us. Shifting CDC guidelines expose an unequal system. Last month, a controversial shift took place on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention CDC website. They had indicated that people who had been exposed to the coronavirus but had no symptoms did not need to be tested. Now they have reversed that and are confirming once again that all people who have been exposed to someone with COVID-19 should be tested. It shouldn't come as a surprise that people are hesitant to believe in the accuracy of the information being transmitted from official sources. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the CDC has been spreading misguiding information about the use of masks, testing accuracy, numbers of cases, and much more. While it's easy to blame a lot of this on the disastrous response by the Trump administration, we have to recognize that there is a broader issue with the handling of this crisis, the one of resources and the choices that those in power are making about those resources. During the first few months of the pandemic, the CDC was advising against the use of masks, arguing that only healthcare providers needed to wear them. This had a lot more to do with access to personal protective equipment than with accurate science. The same goes for the reckless recommendations and improper use of testing. If we systematically prioritize the production of testing supplies, we wouldn't have to play lottery with who should get tested and who shouldn't. What we need is information, resources, and control over these resources. 
not an organization of scientists and healthcare professionals whose ability to protect people is limited by the priorities of an unjust system. RBG, celebrate her life, but be prepared to keep fighting for what we need. On September 18th, the Supreme Court announced that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. The reaction of many people was one of both mourning and celebration of her life, but also intense worry. Thousands of people took to the streets after her death to honor her and what she represented, women's rights and equality. But many are afraid of what will happen if Trump gets to appoint yet another justice to the Supreme Court. Trump has already appointed two justices to shift the court farther to the right. But why should we live under a system where our rights and lives are subject to the whims of nine unelected lawyers? The Supreme Court has consistently defended the rights of the capitalists and the entire system of capitalism, which is based on exploitation and racism. At different times throughout its history, the court has sought to roll back voting rights, women's rights to abortion, labor rights, and much more. Even Ginsburg herself had defended conservative interpretations of law, including in favor of oil companies, building pipelines under national park land, and indigenous people's land. Even if Ginsburg had concerns about the impacts of these decisions, she carried out her responsibility to interpret the constitutionality of U.S. laws. As frightful as it may seem that Trump could get to appoint another justice to the court, we have to remember that we can't rely on the Supreme Court to defend our rights, not even when it has Ginsburg on it. When the Supreme Court has ruled to defend our rights, it has been because of our struggles. The past summer, as millions took to the streets to protest the racism in this society and the vicious cop murders of black people, the conservative-dominated Supreme Court ruled in favor of transgender rights and blocked Trump's attempt to dismantle DACA. We have to rely on our own struggles and organizations to defend our rights and to dismantle the system where the capitalists and the courts work hand-in-hand hand to continue to oppress and exploit us. Despite Black Lives Matter PR, NFL's actions speak louder than words. The National Football League, NFL, season has started again, but this time with a couple of twists. Not only is the league risking players' lives because of coronavirus, its billionaire team owners are claiming to support the Black Lives Matter movement. This is partly because many NFL players are a part of the movement but also needing to catch up with the nation's political climate after the massive George Floyd protests, the NFL has jumped on the bandwagon, pretending to support the Black struggle against police brutality. To do this, the NFL introduced a series of PR measures, such as lift every voice and sing before all games in the first week of the season. This song is known to many as the Black National Anthem. The NFL paid artist Alicia Keys to sing Lift Every Voice and Sing, producing a music video of her performance. This video features a montage of images depicting slavery, the civil rights movement, and the George Floyd protests to honor the struggles of Black people for equal rights throughout the history of the U.S. In a completely surreal turn of events, the NFL used old footage of Colin Kaepernick protesting police brutality by kneeling for the national anthem in the video montage. This reflects the new strategy of the NFL, which is to apologize to Kaepernick and pretend that everything is fine. Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, apologized to Kaepernick in a recent interview saying, quote, I wish we had listened earlier, Cap, 
to what you were kneeling about and what you were trying to bring attention to, end quote. Do the NFL and Roger Goodell think people are that stupid? Has he forgotten Kaepernick is still able to play in the NFL, but the league continues to blackball him from the sport because of his political views and actions? All of this is not lost on Eric Reed, who was Kaepernick's teammate on the 49ers and who kneeled beside him in 2016 to protest the injustice. Reed tweeted that the league's video was, quote, disingenuous PR, unquote, and that it is, quote, unquote, diabolical that the NFL thinks it can use Kaepernick's image to pretend to care about systemic racism, while simultaneously working to rob him of his career. Reed is no stranger to Kaepernick's treatment. He is the newest casualty of the NFL's punishing of players that speak out. Despite setting Carolina Panthers franchise records last season for tackles and sacks by a safety, Eric Reed was not re-signed by the Panthers and has not been signed by another NFL team for the season. Given Reed's statistical performance on the field last year compared to other safeties in the league, there is no explanation for him not getting a tryout for another team other than being blackballed by the league for being so outspoken. Just like Kaepernick. These actions, not words, and bogus PR campaigns continue to show what the NFL truly represents. Wildlife populations have decreased by two-thirds since 1970. Since 1970, the planet's wildlife populations have decreased by an average of 68%, according to the World Wildlife Fund's 2020 Living Planet Report. Today's extinction rate is hundreds, maybe even thousands of times higher than the normal baseline rate. The previous five mass extinction events wiped out 50 to 90% of all species on the planet. Earth is in the middle of its sixth mass extinction, but this time human activity, or more accurately, capitalism, is the driving factor. Wildlife populations in Latin America and the Caribbean have suffered the largest losses, with an average population decline of 94%. Global freshwater species have also been devastated, declining on average 84%. These drastic declines signaled a grim future ahead for millions of species on the planet, humans included, if we don't make efforts to change that fate now. And it's going to take more than simply planting trees and riding our bikes to protect the future. The problem is clearly bigger than any one of us can tackle alone. Protecting our future, the future of millions of species on our planet, is going to take nothing less than a complete transformation of our society. We need a society driven not by profits of a parasitic ruling class, but by our collective will to survive. This future is possible but we're going to have to fight for it. Why are 12,000 refugees sleeping on the side of the road in Greece? The nearly 20 years of Middle East wars have devastated Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. At least 9.7 million people seek refuge in European countries where they hope to find jobs and start new lives. European governments have made the refugees' lives miserable in the hope that they will go back to their war-ravaged countries voluntarily. Some refugees have been deported without even being allowed to apply for asylum. Those refugees the governments don't deport are forced to live in squalid, overcrowded, ramshackle camps, 
Refugees live in tents or in shanties without plumbing, sometimes for years. There is little health care. A week ago, the camp on Lesbos, a Greek island, caught fire. It held 12,000 people, which is four times the number of occupants the Greek government says could safely live there. The overcrowded shanties and tents were jammed so close together that fighting the fire was impossible. The entire camp burned to the ground, forcing all 12,000 occupants to flee. Thousands of men, women, and children are now sleeping in fields alongside the road leading from the camp. The wars in the Middle East continue, seemingly endlessly, because the United States and Russian governments, as well as regional powers like Iran and Saudi Arabia, are all trying to control the abundant oil resources of the Middle East. The refugee crisis resulting from these wars is one more demonstration of the misery that capitalism causes in its mad drive for profits at the expense of everything and everyone else. Mines in Congo eat human beings alive. Friday, September 11th, at least 50 miners died when heavy rains flooded quote-unquote artisanal mining shafts in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The miners drowned in a torrent of muddy water that poured into the shafts too quickly and too powerfully for them to escape. This was a gold mine owned by a Canadian company near the city of Kamituga. This type of mining is known in nearly inhuman irony as quote-unquote artisanal mining. While the word artisanal makes many think of something handcrafted and of high quality, all it means in this case of Congolese mining operations is that the work of digging, drilling, scraping, hauling, climbing, and sifting is done completely by hand in completely unregulated and therefore brutally unsafe conditions. Miners work in narrow, cramped, slippery, dirty, wet tunnels that are quite literally death traps. Tragically, this is not the first time this has happened. In October of 2019, 22 miners died in a gold mine collapse. One month before, in September, 16 were killed in a landslide at another gold mine. Three months earlier, in June 2019, 43 miners working clandestinely at an out-of-commission Swiss-owned copper and cobalt mine died when the mine caved in, and that's only in 2019. And those are only the reported deaths that we know about. There is almost no better example of the never-ending rapaciousness of capitalism than the system of artisanal mining. In the Congo alone, workers are dying by the hundreds every year for profit of global corporations seeking ever greater rates of profit. This system and the minds that are part of it eats human beings alive. When will we wake up and stop it? How much human misery will it take? Big Pharma cutting corners, risking lives. Recently, nine of the biotech and pharmaceutical companies working on vaccines for COVID-19 pledged that they'll only ask the FDA for approval when the vaccines they're working on are proven to be safe and effective. This is clearly a response to the level of fear the public has regarding the safety of the vaccines themselves and the way that they're being produced. But if we look at the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, there's a trend to cut corners get drugs approved as quickly as possible, and settle any lawsuits that come up for patients that have been harmed by a drug. It saves the pharmaceutical companies a lot of money and is more efficient than putting more research time into their products. The quicker a drug can get approved, the quicker profits begin rolling in. 
One such example of this can be found in the pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly and company. Over the years, Lilly has made billions of dollars off of drugs and therapies, some of which ended up hurting a lot of people. For example, their antipsychotic drug Zyprexa, which was approved in 1996 and has made Lilly well over 60 billion, was found to cause patients to develop diabetes and other metabolic disorders. This was because Lilly found it more profitable to keep doctors in the dark about risk factors and marketed this drug to be used in children and the elderly when the FDA approval, when the FDA approval states it may only be prescribed to a specific age group. This is far from an isolated incident. So what makes us believe that these companies will suddenly change their act and prioritize the health and safety of patients over profits? Maybe because we're in a global pandemic? Let's face it, these companies are treating this pandemic as another get-rich-quick scheme and allowing human lives to be in jeopardy. They're going to continue to lie, cheat, and steal if that's what gets them even greater profits. We deserve safe and effective medications, drugs, therapies, and vaccines that aren't produced for profit. It's not just Trump. The whole system insults and exploits veterans. Did Trump call the soldiers sent to fight in the U.S.'s endless wars, quote-unquote, suckers, as former Trump associates have claimed? Knowing how cadet bone spurs avoided the draft, the charge is certainly believable. Far worse than his despicable language are the hardships veterans experience when they come back to the U.S. from combat overseas. In most of the last two decades, under both Democrat and Republican administrations, veterans have experienced higher rates of unemployment and homelessness than the rest of us. At the end of April, as the COVID crisis was peaking, Vietnam vets experienced a 17% unemployment rate, higher than the country as a whole. Many veterans get their health care through the Veterans Administration, the VA. By mid-June, the COVID death rate for vets was 8.5%. So far, COVID has killed 5.5% of vets with the virus. Nationally, the fatality rate for all people is about 3.5%. These sobering numbers result from the fact that the VA has been scandalously underfunded for decades by both Democratic and GOP administrations. In 2014, VA officials were caught faking treatment records to hide the fact that thousands of sick veterans were never treated at all for lack of staff, and the scandals continued. In response, the last couple of years, funding for the VA has increased. But so has the caseload, and right now the VA employs 55,000 fewer people than the government admits it needs. Rather than hire more staff, the Trump administration has increased outsourcing veterans' medical treatment to privately owned clinics and hospitals. Outsourcing makes profits for the investors, and the extra costs from this form of privatization partly explains why the VA doesn't meet veterans' needs. Outsourcing began under the Bush administration and sped up first under Obama and now under Trump. The ever-growing push to privatize and outsource public services is one way the political system works to support making profit at the expense of human needs. The veterans who are losing the benefits the U.S. government shamefully promised them had once been the soldiers that it sent to war to defend that same system. The war machine chewed them up and spat them out. Working people in the U.S. have an enemy in that system and not the military personnel of other countries. They, too, are being used by their bosses and politicians. There's a lesson in that for all of us.
website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. Thanks for listening.